Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'm Meredith Morgenstern, fiction editor here at Tales to Terrify, and this is my final episode celebrating Women in Horror Month. I hope you learned a few things and added some titles to your wish list. Make sure you keep celebrating women in horror all year long. I'd like to thank Drew Sebastini for hiding in the basement while I fed the podcast beast. Drew will be back next week, and I'll return to the shadows, mixing up potions and summoning the most terrifying of tales for your wicked little hearts. I'd also like to thank Andrew Gibson for using his dark powers to help me sound a little more human and a little less like an undead but ambitious hellspawn. Thanks to Seth Williams for all his support, and to Pete for being an all-around cool guy to work with. And I absolutely need to thank our devoted and demented first readers, Kathy Palm, Jasmine Arch, 
Christy Nogle, Amanda DeMel, Kathleen Beckett, and Elizabeth Huffstetler, without whom I would crawl into a hole and cry. Now, just a reminder that Tales to Terrify is committed to highlighting the incredible diversity within the horror community. Therefore, when we talk about women in horror, we mean all women. To wrap up Women in Horror Month, let's talk about a topic that spans nearly every culture from every corner of the globe for almost all human history. I'm talking about the magical feminine witches. The word witch has become a sort of all-encompassing term for women thought to have supernatural or paranormal powers. Historically, witches have been religious figures, priestesses, summoners, healers, and oracles. They've been thought to commune with the divine or to possess the ability to manipulate nature. Everywhere in the world, there has always been some version of what could be called a witch. And yet, the word witch comes with a lot of baggage. In the book I Tituba, Black Witch of Salem by Maurice Conde, our eponymous narrator asks of us, quote, What is a witch? I noticed that when he said the word, it was marked with disapproval. Why should that be? Why? Isn't the ability to communicate with the invisible world, to keep constant links with the dead, to care for others and heal, a superior gift of nature that inspires respect, admiration, and gratitude? Consequently, shouldn't the witch, if that's what the person who has this gift is to be called, be cherished and revered rather than feared? Well said, Madame Condé. By the late 20th century, witchcraft and literature had become a way for women, especially young women, women of color, and women of non-conforming sexualities, to claim their own power. And for some people in this world, there's nothing scarier than a woman who knows her own power. That's why the way a culture or society talks about witches corresponds almost directly with the way they view women as a whole. As long as there are women in the world, there will be witches. Thank goodness, right? Kudos to those of you who caught that deep cut. If you're ready for your initiation into the magical feminine, here are some titles to get you started. I've already mentioned I Tituba, Black Witch of Salem by Maurice Conde. And then there's The Year of the Witching by Alexis Henderson and The Daylight Gate by Jeanette Winterson. This is by no means a complete list. Let us know about your favorite witchy horror written by women by tagging us at Tales to Terrify over on Twitter. We have two stories for you this evening from a couple of frightful femmes and narrated by some familiar voices. Our first story is Lost in Anafiotika by Brooke Brannon. Brooke Brannon is an American writer who lives and works in England. Children of the night, join me for Brooke Brannon's Lost in Anafiotika, a Tales to Terrify original.
It was a sunny spring morning on the slope of the Acropolis, and George Conker, though he didn't know it, was ready to fall in love. George was 30, American, and recently thrown over by a heartless college sophomore who'd made fun of his taste in music and ghosted him after they made love. He tried not to think about it as he made his way along the steep cobbled streets of Anafiotica, the ancient hilltop village that was the historical heart of Athens. He'd fled the United States for Greece precisely so he wouldn't think about it. She'd said he didn't see her. What did that even mean? His heart in tatters, he'd begged the managing director at his law firm for a sabbatical. The MD, being no stranger to doomed love affairs, had agreed at once. Two weeks later, George wandered around Anafiotica, wondering what in hell he was doing. He'd come here looking for beauty, for succor. But even here, in this supposedly picturesque old village, vandals had painted graffiti on the walls. Little orange stick figures with red slashes over the eyes and feet that looked like hooves. They looked more like runes than tags, but it was still graffiti. And the cobblestones, how were they allowed? He'd tripped no fewer than four times. His left knee was bleeding through his trousers. The street he was on was nothing but uneven steps, one four inches, the next nine, and all in a jutting, jarring series of switchbacks. Most disturbing of all were the men he'd seen, one of them looking like a pale, distraught version of his own father, slumped in doorways. They looked hopeless, these men, like they were just waiting it out until the gods saw fit to take them away. But the worst thing was that he was lost. He, George Conker, was lost. GPS was useless in the narrow streets, and his laminated tourist map made no sense at all. Tired, disheartened, and bleeding, he trudged into a little open-air oozery in a small cobbled square at the very top of the hill. The peaked roof had half-size wooden statues of gods, Pan with his cloven feet, Hera with her gimlet eye, painted in vibrant colors, ruby, eggplant, and tangerine whiskering off at the joints and peeling along the flat panes of the flanks. The walls of the little cafe were painted a deep, rich orange. In his terrible Greek, he asked the girl behind the counter where the placa was. Her answer was to sit him down on a wooden chair in the shade of a eucalyptus tree and give him a drink, a tiny, ornate glass of clear liquid. He took a sip beyond caution and felt himself transported. The drink, which was very sweet and slightly herbal, reminded him of summer camp when he was a kid. All sunlight and pine trees and unfettered pre-adolescent joy. A little breeze swept the sharp, clean smell of the leaves toward him, their rustling waking him up to the world. And the waitress. Chloe was a poem, a tall, lithe Greek with supple arms, her tan fingers covered in silver rings, her lovely eyes heavy-lidded and dark. George himself was tall, clumsy, and quite pale. He had an incipient widow's peak and a bad ankle, which was not, as he maintained, the product of a football injury, but of falling off a curb while standing stock still. In fact, if he hadn't been the only one on the corner, he'd have sworn he'd been pushed. He'd broken it, and like most good things of youth, it had never quite come back.
What is this? He asked, not daring to use his Greek. Mastika, she said, not quite meeting his eyes. But that didn't matter. Her voice was like bells. George would have gladly sat and listened to her forever. Without being asked, as if she knew exactly what he needed, she poured him another. He watched her, noticing her trail her fingers along the bottles on the shelf, finally alighting on one small twisted bottle labeled Mastica. It had gold flecks in it, and as it caught the light, it looked as though the liquor itself was sunlight. She took another of the delicate little glasses and poured him a measure, barely looking at the glass. Out of nowhere, a goat with a little orange scarf around its neck tripped up to her and nudged her hip, looking straight at George. She put a placating hand on its head. It was then that George understood how people could believe in magic. If magic existed, it would surely make its home in this girl. The mastica burned in his mouth in a friendly Greek way, and the rest of it fell away, his map, his knee, his heartbreak. He looked at Chloe and felt like he was staring at the sun. You like? she asked, and at that moment, he could not have moved from his chair. Very much, he said, and noticed then how her eyes only just lit on his and then flitted away. Did she know, had she guessed, that he was neuroatypical? At least, he thought so, even if he'd never been diagnosed. A little dose of Asperger's would certainly explain why he'd always been so unlucky in love. Behind them, the goat bleated so suddenly that George jumped. Chloe smiled and tossed it a bit of food, nodding at it as if it were a regular customer. Zero Arastis, she called to it. George scrambled to look it up. I know my love. She moved so gracefully behind the counter, pulling espressos, pouring drinks, handing out euros. She barely even looked where she was going. Every once in a while, she would glance his way and smile coquettish. He hated to admit it, but it was working on him. He came back the next day and the next, and each time her smile grew warmer. It was like he knew her already. Each day as he made his painstaking way up the hill trying not to fall, he found himself imagining what it would be like when they were together at last. They would of course have pet names for one another. He'd call her something stupid like Pookie or Pumpkin or Doodlebug, and she'd come up with some adorable Greek name for him, maybe Giorgio or something. Apparently, the Greeks called one another Jerry Moe as Little Liver. Sure, it was a little gross, but he could live with it. After a while, they would marry. The goat, naturally, would be the flower girl. He would not return to the U.S. He'd already begun to call it The States, because once they were married, he would have a visa. Her parents would love him. Oh, sure, her father would pretend not to at first. These old Greek men were so gruff, so macho, stuck in the past but he would win the old man over with his fine American bank account and his deep and never-ending love for Chloe. They would have children, of course, but there he stopped himself. The thought of making love to her, of yielding to all that warm, dark flesh. Well, it wouldn't do to show up with a massive erection. No, indeed. 
He took to arriving every day at 11 a.m., no sense in appearing too eager. She would greet him with a little tipple, saying, Mastica for my good American man. And he would drink it in little sips, admiring her in little sips too. Now lunch, she would say, pronouncing it launch. And she would select a euro for him, or some spanakopita. Delicious, he would say, and watch the sway of her backside as she walked away. I take care of you, she would say, nodding. Then she would call to her goat, Adelphi Siki, poesai. George, making his travel dictionary work harder than it was intended to, sussed it out. Where are you, she was asking. Quite why she had such an affection for the goat escaped him. It smelled bad, and it always threatened to headbutt George when he arrived. Chloe would just laugh and scratch it behind the ears. If it was being particularly naughty, she would take it by one of its horns and give it a playful little shake. He devoted himself to memorizing every detail of her body, the way she moved, the way she smiled, the way she spoke. When busy, she dealt efficiently with the ebb and flow of tourists and students and locals who came like the tides to her golden-skinned shore. When there was a break in the flow, she would look out across the little square above the tops of the one-story whitewashed houses haphazardly strewn across the square. Was she looking at the bright blue sky? at the power lines that crisscrossed even that ancient village, at the birds that wheeled and swung in the light. He didn't know. George, a thoroughly practical man who'd never been prone to romanticism, suspected she was looking for her fate. It took four days for his break to come. The break in the tourists, that never-ending wave, thanks to a newly clouded sky. She'd cleaned the espresso machine, wiped down the counter, and swept the front of the open-air cafe. She beat her hands together twice, smiled a wry little smile at the goat that milled around the back of the oozery, and poured them both masticas. Now you talk to me, she said, her English almost as poor as his Greek. He didn't care. Her smile made up for it, the fine angles of her jaw and cheekbones playing in concert to break his heart and mend it all at the same time. Her gaze only lit on his once in a while. If you didn't know better, if you hadn't been watching, you'd have thought she had some sort of problem with her eyesight. But George knew it was deliberate. She was protecting herself just as he did. And yet, when she sat next to him, her hand brushed his arm every once in a while. It looked like an accident, but he knew it wasn't. She felt it too, this communion of souls, this unquestionable attraction. They didn't even need to discuss it. They were meant to be together. George was even warming to the goat, who now sported a little orange tie around its neck. And when she would get up to tend to another customer, he watched her backside sway imagining how warm, how silky soft the insides of her thighs were. He imagined running a hand up the inside of her leg while she was seated with him at what he'd come to think of as their table, the rickety one that got the best of the shade from the eucalyptus tree. And when that heated him up too much, he started drafting a Facebook post for when they made it official. George Conker, in a relationship, it would say, and he would post the most winning photo of them together, that college girl could eat her heart out. 
two weeks of this, and she'd stayed at his table longer and longer, ostensibly practicing her English, but really falling in love with him. He knew the signs, the way she demurred looking in his eyes, but managed twice now to have one of the buttons of her blouse accidentally slip open. The skirt she wore grew shorter, the heels taller. She'd taken to giving the goat affectionate little rubs behind the ears, as if not allowing herself to touch George, she had to touch something. He chuckled indulgently, thinking of it. She wanted him as badly as he wanted her. He had to tell her that he shared her feelings, if only to give her some relief. And then they would escape to his hotel room, or perhaps she had rooms nearby, and explore each other, take their rest in each other. The thought sent the blood rushing through him, filling him with heat and need, and most of all, a world-class erection, which required two more masticas to dim. That does it, he thought. Tomorrow I will tell her I love her. But it took a few more days to work up the nerve. The day he did, Athens woke to bright, warm sunshine. He'd slept fitfully, in dreams chasing Chloe up one street and down another, only to find himself in a blind alley, with no clue where she'd gone, and no clue how to get back to his room in the placa. But the morning breeze blew all that away. He felt invincible as he wound up the hill, his best linen trousers snapping across his calves, his feet for once swift and effortless on the cobblestones. He was in sympathy with all things, from the potted houseplants leaning against the white walls, faces to the sun, to the wizened brown yayas under the bougainvillea, spindly little brown cigarettes clenched in their mouths, little nut eyes laughing at him. The world was glorious. Even the graffiti was glorious. He spotted one of the little orange men with red streaks across their eyes and thought, how could I have thought that was ugly? He touched it briefly as he passed, his own personal mezuzah. And then he faced his daily Rubicon, the lane that led up to Chloe's usury, the street of 100 uneven steps, all of them limestone white. The lane jutted and sparred its way up the hill, houses angling in at crazy angles, chairs placed outside doors, one tripping hazard after another. George had never once climbed it without falling. But today was for triumph. As he began to climb, an old man joined him. He dressed in the way of Europe's dignified old men, straw boater, linen suit, good leather shoes, natty orange neckerchief. He used an old wooden walking stick topped with a glossy burl. And here is my chance to prove I am worthy. Grandmother, George said, his Greek failing him once more. I will you help. Oh, the old man peered at him, his eyes chalk white, pupilless. I could use a good pair of eyes. George offered his arm. The man took it, and slowly they climbed the steps. George practiced his Greek by telling him about his Chloe. Glorious, spectacular, delightful. As he did, Clouds gathered overhead, dimming the steps and cooling the day. This Chloe, she works at the usury, the old man said. Yes, she is glorious. 
I know. She is my... The man uttered something that could have been granddaughter or grandmother or simply grand. What luck. The old man was her grandfather. They were within sight of the oozery. Two tourists, a mother and a daughter, accepted cups of coffee and called their thanks back to Chloe, who dusted her hands together and stood looking over the small square. Any minute, she would notice him. The sun broke through the clouds and lit on her and her alone, as if even the gods acknowledged her beauty, her fineness. The old man seemed to creep closer to him. What would you do to have her? Anything, George breathed, not even thinking about the question. Chloe was almost, but not quite, looking down the steps at them. Adelphi Siki, she called. Puese. The old man leaned in. His breath smelled metallic, like copper pennies, like something you would avoid in a storm. You would do anything for her. Anything. That is good, my son. The old man breathed in his ear, his breath almost a tangible thing. Chloe finally seemed to spot them in her scatty off-center way, crying, Torah! Torah meant now. Now, she felt it too. George turned to run to her, but the old man gripped George's forearm with a sudden ferocity. Shut your eyes, the old man said. If he ran for her, he would be leaving Chloe's grandfather to totter up the steps alone, and George wasn't sure he could come back from that. So he quelled his urge to run and let the old man do what he would. A thick fog coalesced around them, gathering so quickly George wondered if it was something dangerous. Mustard gas, say. But he couldn't smell anything bad. Only the eucalyptus trees and the faint scent of Turkish coffee and behind that, something animal. The goat, perhaps. Your eyes, the old man insisted, his own going strangely yellow in the fog. George obeyed, thinking... Maybe this is some kind of Greek blessing. The last thing he saw as he closed his eyes was the old man's bent finger, brown and gnarled as an olive branch, rising shakily to George's face. Something red, blood, embedded under the thick fingernail. The old man drew his finger across his eyelids, the pad of his finger rough, almost scaly, hard somehow. George's nose filled with the scent of tobacco and hot coals and fur. Yes, oily fur like the Labrador retriever he'd had as a kid, like Chloe's goat. There was the slightest tingle, a tiny zap that he felt across his eyelids, and then nothing, not even the old man. His arm was suddenly free, and the cloying, dark feel of the man next to him had disappeared. He heard the old man humping up the steps alone. His steps sped up, then changed entirely, now sounding like hooves. It is okay to open my eyes now? All he heard was laughter, so George opened his eyes and saw not fog, but blackness. He felt his face. His eyes were definitely open, but he could not see. Was it a test? 
In the distance, his Chloe laughed too, her voice more like bells than ever. Adelphi Siki, her voice was light with joy. The goat bleated back, and now with his sight gone, it was as if George could finally understand the goat. It sounded triumphant, as if it had won something. It sounded for all the world like it was gloating. I have lost my fucking mind. He sank to the ground, afraid to leave the spot, his hands patting the steps around him. Where was he? How many steps would it take to get to Chloe? Surely she saw he was in trouble. Surely she would come for him. Thunder tore across the stone steps as the first of the raindrops hit him square on the forehead. He crab-walked to one side, managing to find a doorway that gave him a little shelter. Then he thought of his phone. He was saved. He rifled through his fine linen jacket for it, but relief drained away as he realized he wouldn't be able to see the screen. And without that, it was useless. Chloe would see him. Chloe would help. He raised his head toward where he thought she was and started to call her name. But then he thought of her never quite meeting his eyes, touching each bottle before she got to the one labeled Mastica, looking out across the square. Looking, though, or simply aiming her face at the sun? Had he done it again? Had the college girl been right? Then he heard Chloe, not his Chloe, never, as it turned out, his Chloe, cry. I can see. The goat laughed. That was Brooke Brannon's Lost in Anafiotica, as read by our own Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming. He remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the Narrator Nook, and the Haven Discord servers, links to which you can find in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story of the night is The Happiness Man by Pauline Yates. Australian author Pauline Yates has stories published with Midnight Echo, Metaphorosis, Redwood Press, Black Hair Press, plus others, and is included in several anthologies, including The Lost Librarian's Grave, Score and SFF Symphony, Best Vegan, and Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018. She was a winner of the 2020 AHWA Short Story Competition, and her story, The Best Medicine, appears in Midnight Echo number 16 and was translated for the Mondi Incantati series published by Riflessi de Luz Lunari, Italy. Pauline's Twitter handle is at MidnightMuser1, and links to her stories can be found at paulineyates.com. Children of the Night, join me for Pauline Yates's The Happiness Man another Tales to Terrify original. Deliver me from this evil. Deliver me from this evil. Deliver me from this... The dark constricts my throat with a malevolence pressure that cuts off my plea for salvation. Visions follow. The slash of a knife. The gurgled gasp, eyes rolling, showing their whites. Raising my bloodied hands, I press my finger to my skull, but the visions don't fade. It's punishment for my disobedience. A reminder... I shouldn't be praying for deliverance from the ethereal parasite that infects me. 
I should be feeding it happiness. If I don't, the dark will punish me with visions worse than what I suffer now. Forced to comply, I crouch by the dead man at my feet and pluck the wallet from his pocket. The black embossed leather emits a yellow glow, like the first light of dawn. How pitiful that money is this man's source of happiness. Not that it matters. The dark doesn't care what brings happiness. Only that I collect it. The dark's appetite for what it does not have is insatiable. Raising the wallet to my lips, I open my mouth and suck the yellow glow. Happiness floods my body in waves of warmth that fill my mind with new visions. The slap of water against the bow of a yacht. A clink of ice. A splash of scotch. I roll my tongue, saturating my mouth with a taste of alcohol, taking pleasure in the slow burn down my throat. But my pleasure is short-lived. The dark devours the happiness, leaving my tongue tasting like ash and my mind as black as the day my soul ripped open, allowing the dark in. Sweet Jesus, Tommy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so fucking sorry. The shadows swirl around me, the dark's formless sentries. They shape into ghost-like images of Tommy and taunt me with his death. Tommy falling from the railway bridge, Tommy's head splitting on the tracks. A dark growls, a guttural rumble from the belly of the beast. It's intolerant when hungry. My offering wasn't enough. Quick to appease their master, the shadows resume their formless shapes and hunt me away from my kill. I'd laugh as I could. The shadows are slaves to the dark, too. Opening the wallet, I pluck out a wad of notes, then wipe my knife on the dead man's jacket and slide it back into my pocket. Concealed by shadows, I walk across town and enter the city park. Wash my hands and face in a fountain. Find George, my park buddy. He's asleep under a sheet of cardboard, the garbage bag stuffed with his meager belongings, his pillow. Crouching next to him, I slip half the money into George's clenched hand. Startled awake at my touch, he wails like a wounded man, fearful of being mugged, forced to move, hunted by the ghosts in his past. I pet his arm. Just me, George. He peers up at me. Recognition lights his eyes. That you, Ben? Yeah, something to help you sleep. His finger tightens around the money. Where you at? I lick my lips, taste ash. Need a drink. Devil's in the drink, boy. The devil I can handle. It's the dark I can't. Patting his arm, I stand and continue across the park, needing a drink more than ever. Scotch. On ice. It pours through my brain, saturating my senses. Fuck. Fuck you, dark. Fuck you. A shot of scotch isn't a reward for my compliance. It's the dark tempting me, wired because it's still hungry and there ain't no happiness in this park. Just drunks and lost souls and loneliness and God-fucking-hopelessness. My outburst incurs more punishment, a vision of two fools skylarking on the bridge above the train line, ignorant of their fragility. Me and Tommy. Tommy falling. Tommy, dead, 
dead, fucking dead because of me. Fuck. The vision fades. I see nothing but black, black mind, black shadows. They push me, crowd me, and force me towards lights in the distance, the entertainment side of town. Pubs and clubs and seedy basement bars. I know a bar. It sells good scotch. Scotch on ice. That's what I want. That's what the dark says I want. The door to the basement bar is at the end of a loading dock in a cemented wall covered in graffiti. It's past curfew. No entry after 3 a.m. But cash in the hand talks the bouncer's language. Going inside, I choose a seat at the far end of the bar, the dark end. The shadows creep around the few patrons, searching for traces of happiness. I glance around the other tables. A couple in a booth sling curses at each other in thick, slurred undertones. A dance floor is empty. A woman sits alone sucking on a cigarette. A faint hint of yellow tints her lips. It fades when she stubs out the butt, reappears when she lights another. I look away. Her happiness is an illusion, but God, I'd kill for a cigarette. Kill for the dark. Licking my lips, I force my attention to the bottles behind the bar. A scotch bottle winks at me, liquid pleasure as dark as my mood. At the end of the counter, a service door opens. A waitress backs out carrying a tray of glasses. Her blonde hair shimmers like spun gold. A yellow shimmer. So bright it burns my eyes. Leave, Ben. Leave, 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 leave. The waitress turns around. Her eyes meet. Her aura brightens, casting gold streaks that spear my heart. Ben? What are you doing here? Needing that damn shot of scotch, I clench my hands together. I've always been here, Casey. You're the one who left. She doesn't deserve my anger. And I'm the moth, and she's my flame. I have to leave. Leave before the shadows find her, before the dark detects how happy she makes me. But everything about her holds me transfixed. Frowning, Casey places the tray of glasses on the counter. That's not fair, Ben. Losing my brother was hard enough without watching you destroy yourself with guilt. She punches my heart, but I deserve it. Who else am I going to blame? Tommy? It wasn't his idea to climb the railings. It was an accident. She picks up a glass and rubs it with a cloth. Don't do this, Ben. Do what? Live your life on that bridge. Sighing, she puts down the glass and gives me a sad smile. You look like hell. Yeah, you're not looking so sweet either, darling. That's a lie. She has and always will define heaven her pure heart, her unblemished soul. She's the light at the end of a dark tunnel, flickering flame in my wretched heart. Losing her was the worst consequence of falling victim to the dark. She is the happiness I lost. Casey leans on the counter. I know what you're doing, Ben, but distancing yourself from everyone is not helping. I only left because I didn't know how to help. We both needed time to grieve, but your grief turned into something dark and nasty, and I couldn't handle it. 
You withdrew into yourself, screamed obscenities in your sleep, crazy stuff about not being able to see in the dark. You stayed out late, stopped coming home. I didn't know where you were half the time or what you were doing. You shut me out, Ben, and made me think I was the problem. Do you know how bad that hurt? She'll hurt more if I stay, but it's too late to leave. The shadows creep behind the bar and swirl around her, curious to know who this soul is and why it's so bright. Their interest arouses the dark. It rises within me, restless, ravenous. I'm sorry, so fucking sorry about what I did and what I'm going to do. You made the right decision to leave. I'm not good for you, Casey. I'm not good for anyone. Casey reaches across the table and, please don't touch me, places her hand on mine. This isn't you, Ben. The withdrawal, the self-sabotage. I get it. I do. You were Tommy's best friend and seeing him die the way he did. She shivers like Tommy's ghost walked over her. Of course you took it the hardest. But it's been six months since the funeral, and from the look of you, nothing's changed. You can't see it but you spiraled into a dark depression and it will only get worse if you don't get help. I laugh. <laughs> dark, yeah, you got that right. Ben, please, she pleads, gripping my hand tighter. Talk to someone, a professional. I did, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I needed help too, Tommy. She sighs and presses her hand to her heart. He's alive in here. His goofy antics, his infectious laugh, his crooked smile. The big brother who always looked out for his little sister. That's how I want to remember him. The happy stuff. You know Tommy. He wouldn't want to see you like this. That wasn't him, and it's not you. Tears fill her eyes. You're in here too. I haven't given up hope that the man I love will come home. It's dangerous, so dangerous, knowing she keeps our happiness alive. The yellow glow cloaks her like a shroud, exciting the shadows and tempting the dark. She's wrong about the depression. No doctor can cure the evil that infects me. But being with her, hearing her voice, feeling her love, her empathy, fills me with a warmth I haven't felt since Tommy died. Casey and I had everything going for us. Love, laughter, commitment. Our future was bright. The dark took that happiness from me. It'll use me to take it from her. I should leave. But her touch makes memories filter into my mind and I'm held captive. Easing my hand from her as I trace my finger along the back of her hand, the way I woke her in the mornings. Your brother said he'd break my kneecaps if I ever hurt you. I'm sorry if I did. Casey rolls her hand over so I can trace the lines on her palm, the way she did when her eyes fluttered open. My brother said you were the only guy he'd allow me to date. I smile. I said that. Odd, I haven't smiled since Tommy died. Casey laughs, silver bells in a spring breeze. You did not. I did. I paid Tommy twenty bucks to tell you that, so you'd go out with me. Twenty bucks? 
Is that all I was worth? It was everything I had. She blushes. In that case, you're forgiven. Forgiven enough to pour me a drink? She sighs and withdraws her hand. I guess so. The usual? She reaches for a beer glass. Scotch. On the ice. Damn the dark. Frowning, she fetches the scotch bottle, pours a nice shot on ice, and slides the glass across the counter. On the house, for old time's sake. I barely register picking up the glass. The bar is brighter, the atmosphere less gloomy. I can't see the shadows, can't sense the dark. My mood is lifted and I'm happy? Impossible. The dark is greedy and never allows happiness to linger. But it does, and more memories fill my mind. My curiosity for Casey as she changed from being Tommy's pestering little sister into a magnet for my heart. The secret smile she gave me behind Tommy's back. Her warm body against mine as we lay intertwined beneath crumpled sheets. Her lips on mine. The fire in her kisses. I tense, expecting the dark to suck away those happy memories but the images dance through my mind, and I'm filled with hope that there's a way to escape the darkness that consumes me. Have my prayers been answered? Is Casey my salvation? No, 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 she can't save me. It's a trick. It's an illusion. The dark will snare her to run, Ben, run. Is fear whispering a truth I don't want to accept? That Casey is right, and all I suffer is depression after watching Tommy die? It's hard to tell after being lost in the dark for so long. But how I feel right now is not an illusion. I'm an empty vessel, and Casey is filling me with life, with hope, with happiness. And it sticks. What if the dark and the shadows are figments of my imagination, because it's easier to succumb to depression than to admit I need help? Picking up my drink, I suck on an ice cube and crunch it between my teeth. So, what have you been up to? Why are you working in this dump? Casey shrugs. Need the money. The rent won't pay itself. What about you? Where are you living now? In a cardboard house. No fixed address, she frowns. Do you have a job? I run my finger over the rim of the glass. I'm a collector. Oh? Her face brightens. What do you collect? My smirk. Anything that makes me happy. My mood plummets. What am I doing? The only collection I have is the one she'll end up in. I don't know where the dark is or where the shadows went, but they'll be back. Casey isn't safe around me. Nobody is. It's my turn to leave. Permanently. I drain my drink and stand. I have to go. It was good to see you, Casey. Take care of yourself. Ignoring her crushed expression, I push the empty glass across the counter and leave before she can tempt me to stay. When I step outside, the shadows close around me. They shape into images of my life with Casey, stolen from the memory she holds in her heart. How long were they sifting through our life together, honing in on the source of Casey's happiness? The whole time, you fucking fool, Ben. 
Deep inside me, the dark laughs, a ravenous rumble in my belly, humored by my misplaced hope at finding salvation. There is no hope for me, nor is there hope for Casey. The dark has seen how much happiness Casey and I bring each other, and it wants everything good we shared, and anything good we could have shared. The dark will not let her escape. Run, Ben, run. Slamming my fists at the shadow, I run from the loading dock. I need to find another source of happiness to appease the dark so it will forget about Casey. It won't forget. Run, Ben. Run. A taxi driver. A drunk. Hell, I'll kill George if I have to. Shove my wad of money in his face and suck the happiness from his eyes. Ben, wait. Casey's voice drifts on the still night air, and her shoes click on the pavement closer closer. The dark sinks into my legs, forcing me to stop. Casey touches my arm, sending an omnivorous shiver of electricity through my skin. I finish my shift. Would you like to go someplace else and, I don't know, hang out? I turn around, the dark's puppet, and feast on the glowing yellow that shines from within her. It's late. Nothing's open. The shadows close around us, mocking my pitiful attempt to dissuade her. Stally's is open. The little bar on West Avenue. We could cut through the back streets like we used to, remember? I don't want to remember. Remembering Slice's open veins linked to old times, fun times, and the dark sucks the happiness from them like a cocaine addict snorting lines. Powerless to dissuade its hunger, I rest my hand on her shoulder. Those back streets are dark. Aren't you afraid what lurks in the shadows? Casey tilts her face to mine. Not when I'm with you. Her happiness to be with me pulses in time with her pounding heart. Drawn to her, I raise my hand and touch her cheek. God, I want to kiss her. Press my lips to hers and drain all the happiness from our hearts so the dark won't take her. But it won't be enough. It's never enough. The dark wants blood, too. I trace my thumb over her lips. You should go home. Because my other hand slides to the knife in my back pocket. Don't do it. Fight. Fight, you weak bastard. It's not home without you. She presses her hand against my heart. I love you, Ben. I'm not losing you again. Clutching the front of my shirt, she presses her lips to mine, her sweet, soft lips. Visions explode in my mind, Casey and me kissing under a blanket of stars, loving each other to the break of dawn. I push her against the wall, crush my body against hers, kneading her, loving her, kissing all the happiness from her as I swing my knife. No! The knife strikes the wall beside Casey's head, chips of cement flint across her cheek, startled, she jerks her lips from mine and stares at me wide-eyed. Ben, what are you doing? I shove her sideways. Go, get away from me. The shadows swoop. They swirl around Casey, blinding her. She stumbles into the wall and falls. I hold the knife against the wall, but the dark rises, ravenous, furious. The visions of loving Casey fade, sucked into the abyss, taking all the happiness with it. New visions surface. Casey gone. 
the cold bed, the emptiness without her, Tommy again, his body cut in half by the train that couldn't stop. No, no, no. I jabbed the knife into the wall again and again and again. When the visions fade, I swing the knife down and stab it into my stomach. Die, you fucking bastard, die. Sulfurous vapor explodes from the knife wound, pouring out with my blood. The dark roars. Its vessel destroyed, it escapes into the night, dragging the shadows with it. I drop to my knees, hands clutched to the knife's handle. Blood runs through my fingers, pooling beneath me on the ground. Ben? Casey. She hovers above me, a million miles away. Ben, don't move. I'll get help. Looking up, I breathe her in one last time. You've already helped. Because of you, I'll die a happy man. Kissing her under a blanket of stars. Loving her forever. Casey drops to her knees. Don't you die on me. Don't you dare, she pleads, tears pouring down her face. Don't leave me, Ben. Ben! She slumps, sobs racking her body. Behind her, in the shadows, something creeps. Something dark. That was Pauline Yates' The Happiness Man, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Farfetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour has grown late, our spells have been cast, and we've run out of tales to tell, for now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show for free? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream, and leave us a five-star review. We really do read our reviews, and you'll help convert new listeners to the terrifying tales we provide. Share your love of Tales to Terrify out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs. Tales to Terrify is produced 
by Drew Sebastini, Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Meredith Morgenstern. Our original theme is by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Thank you for coming along with me this month on our wild journey, celebrating the dark and divine feminine in horror. Join us again next week as we bewitch you with more Tales to Terrify. Would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.